And Jesus definitely had a particular politic. He would not shut up about the gap between the rich and the poor. Like, he just wouldn't do it. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss, and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I catch up, talk a little bit about what's going on in the world. And then later on, we sat down with Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Reverend Walkie is the senior minister of Mayflower Congregational Church in Oklahoma City. And we just needed a pastoral voice this week. And so it's a good episode. Can't wait for you to hear it. So stay tuned. Hello there, Missy. Hey, how are you? I'm doing quite well, and you? I'm I'm doing all right. Good. I know that last week I received an assignment from you. Yes, you did. Do you remember what it was? No clue. See, I was going to say, you don't have any <laughs> recollection of this, but if I don't address it, I will feel guilty for any, for like the maybe the one person who's going to actually remember this. Oh, there'll be that one person. That, that will email me, right? So we talked about new laws for 2024. We did, yes. And you asked what new laws were were going to be enacted in our mm-hmm. household, and I told you I didn't know. I hadn't thought about it's it. It's all coming back to me now, and I'm getting a little bit nervous. <laughs> I know. So I said, "Oh, I'll come back with some of this." I, no kidding, have been thinking about this all <laughs> week and trying to come up with new laws for the house for 2024. And I have to say, I hadn't come up with any. Until five minutes ago. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Because so. I, I will preface this by bragging on you. I mean, I just, there is nothing. You, there's nothing I need you or, well, except for this one thing. There's nothing <laughs> that I could think that I would want to change or dictate in our household. Well, in 28 years, you have trained me well. I, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. But just before we came upstairs, and this is something I have made note of before, and mm-hmm. I've been trying to figure out a way to... um broach this subject because mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to be nitpicky and naggy, but here we go. <laughs> okay. And I will preface this by saying a few years ago, we invested in one of the super quiet, super fancy dishwashers, right? Yes, we did. It's beautiful. And for whatever reason, when we got it, you were so excited about it. So you kind of took over the dishwasher duties. Yes. Yeah. Which I mean, had been primarily my, I mean, just, you know, I don't know, no reason, but I had primarily been. Well, I can tell you the reason it. because I got chastised numerous well, times for well, loading the dishwasher improperly. If you had done it right, it would have been fine. <laughs> Anyways, so you were the one that really learned the new dishwasher and you've primarily taken that duty over, which has been great. Anyways, but here's here's the thing I want to institute as a new law. When you unload the dishwasher, stack my measuring cups in the appropriate container in the drawer. <laughs> because stack them they are yes because of the way the drawers designed they need to be in this little container and then my measuring spoons need to be in the container and i've had to go hunting and i finally realized the other day you weren't putting them back where they were supposed to go i, I thought was we putting were losing them, them near where they yeah. were supposed <laughs> right. to go in the general proximity yeah kind of like the way you throw a kleenex at a trash can <laughs> right <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Okay, so we'll each institute the law. The Kleenex is going in the trash in, and it's not Kleenex, it's 
paper towels. I'm just, I don't, for whatever reason, I'm an overuser of paper towels. Anyways, so yes, I will try to be better if you will. How's that? But that's I, really the only thing. Okay, well, I will do my best. Fair enough. Okay, <laughs> I just was worried that somebody might come at me if I didn't have um, that assignment ready. So there you go. All right, well, let it be said, let it be written. <laughs> okay. You and I decided we needed to talk to a pastor this week. Yes, and that was primarily me. I'm not going to lie. Um, I just, we, I, I'll brag for a moment here. We made it to midnight on New Year's Eve. <laughs> yes, we did. We're not going to tell you what time zone, but we made it to no, midnight. No, we did. And we then did. some, and then some. Um, and so we toasted the new year. But then I, I just remember telling you, I just have a sense of, of just dread and fear about this year just because, you know, we heading into an election season and just all the mudslinging that comes with that. And then, you know, what the um, outcome of the election may bring. And I said, I'm, I'm just, I'm nervous. I'm so nervous. And so we were talking about podcast scheduling and I, I just said, you know, I, I need a pastoral voice right now. Um, And so we invited Lori Walkie, Reverend Dr. Lori, no, yeah, yeah, Reverend Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Yeah, we uh, reached out to one of our local pastors here in the Oklahoma City metro area. She's the pastor at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City, a dear friend of ours. Her sister was a church member uh, when I was in local Uh church ministry. Uh, Just very thoughtful, uh, very kind, very generous. We just needed somebody to put some analysis to the craziness yeah, uh, of this to, world and then to reassure us that, you know, there's some hope to cling to. Yes. Like I said, it just was seeking some sort of somebody from the pulpit. I just needed to hear from. And so that's what is, as we interview her, I asked her to please, you know, step into the pod pulpit and, yeah. and talk to us for a little bit about, um, about just some issues and, and what's going on and, and how her faith informs her actions. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, it was a great conversation. Stay tuned. Reverend Lori Walkie is going to give you some hope. I've always been struck by the scriptures we avoid reading, the stories we don't want to tell in church. I'm Brett Harrison. That's what You've Never Read This, a new series from God Knows Where, is all about. We'll read from prophets and histories we've hidden from ourselves, even words of wisdom and warning from Jesus that we've likely never heard. As with everything we do here, God knows where this will lead us. But I hope you'll join me. Find God Knows Where on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie is an unbridled enthusiast about the high calling of local church ministry and what the beloved community can do to make life on earth as it is in heaven for all our neighbors. Lori serves as Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. She is a proud product of more public schools and a graduate of Oklahoma State University, Oklahoma City University School of Law, Phillips Theological Seminary, and Emory University. She is often described as a velvet hammer. Lori is married to Colin Walkie, attorney and former state house representative for District 86, so she's always getting into some kind of good trouble. Lori, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. So good to be with you, Mitch and Missy. So Lori, we're going to begin today. I talked a little bit in our introduction that um, our reason for bringing you here today <laughs> um, <laughs> is a little bit selfish. So We need some help, Lori. We, we do. I... <laughs> I told Mitch when we were talking about booking out the first of the year that, you know, since 
the clock struck midnight on January 1st. Just this impending sense of fear has washed over me. We're heading into... So she's being kind. It's doom. It's a fear of doom. Well, that's, <laughs> doom is my baseline, is the thing. So we got to go one, one, one beyond that. Anyways, and I just... We're coming up on election year, just lots of stress and lots of unknowns and things. And I just told him, I said, I just feel like I really need a pastoral voice. So because she doesn't um, have a pastoral voice in her life, Lori. No, <laughs> <laughs> yours doesn't count. But anyways, I just, you're somebody that I've come to rely on your, your advocacy, your expertise, your knowledge, um, your prophetic voice is just so important. And I thought our listeners would also really benefit from, from this type of conversation um, you know, as we start out the new year and look ahead to a lot of uncertainty ahead. So thank you for joining us. I'm going to request at this point that you step behind the pod pulpit. Is that all right? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like that. All I right. like that. Yeah. So I want to start with a couple of just foundational questions that, you know, many people throughout the years have, you know, formed the idea that separation of church and state meant that your faith should not inform your politics at all. Um, that's kind of the idea that I grew up with, at least. And so I wanted to know if you can talk about how your faith does shape your politics while still honoring the founding principle of separation of church and state. And secondly, help us understand the difference between how you might allow your faith to influence your practice in the public square versus a, how a Christian nationalist claims to do so. Sure. So I think that a lot of us were raised the same way, Missy, where, where there were rules at what uh, could um, be present at the dinner table. Uh, no elbows and no politics, mm-hmm. right? And um, I think that that's also sort of true for church. No politics in church. That's what we were raised on. And I think part of that is because uh, we have been um, misusing some words, and we need to be more precise about our language. So politics comes from the Greek word polis, meaning of the city. And so politics is the shaping of the city. And I think we can all agree that all of us have a role in that, particularly we we have a a role in shaping the kind of city we want to see or the kind of community, whatever, uh, however, you know, organizing structure you want to say that, community, city, state, country, um, global organization. Do we want this to be um, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic or do we want to look differently so if we understand politics as the shaping of the community then we can define what behavior we don't want to engage in which i would define as partisanship Mm -hmm. the church should definitely not engage in partisanship and partisanship i would define as in behavior that harasses an enemy that divides us into opposing teams, red, blue, Democrat, Republican, independent, um, where we are our first pri- our first allegiance is to party platform, the partisanship. Politics though, does not require us to stand under anyone's banner, but Jesus's. And Jesus definitely had a particular politic. He would not shut up about the gap between the rich and the poor. Like he just wouldn't do it. Um, And that got him into some trouble. He wouldn't stop talking about um, bringing in, uh, widening the circle of touching the quote unquote untouchables of eating with those who were not deemed uh, holy or righteous enough. Um, And, 
And so when we look at that, that, that example, um, I, I am a firm believer that we need to be politicos for Jesus. We need to be shaping our community in ways that reflect the kingdom of God. Now, how is that different from Christian nationalism or uh, the moral majority? There's been a suggestion that there should be a religious left to battle the religious right. And that, again, I think breaks us up into teams um, that are opposing each other, that we cast each other as enemies. And that, I think, is an unfaithful approach. It's just not a faithful approach. Whereas if we can take a step back and say, um, we're, again, our, our highest allegiance is to God, is to Jesus. It is not to our particular group that we've decided to form ourselves and decide who's in and who's out. And I think that, that is um, really the main difference between what I am proposing uh church that is involved politically, but is not partisan. And we can see some of this really clearly in the rhetoric. There's um, a quote from Donald Trump that said, basically, if he loses the election, that's the end of Christianity as we know it, the end of the Republican Party. And he sort of conflated them, not sort Mm -hmm. of, he conflated them. Right. That's a really scary notion. Um, And not at all what the church needs to be about. It shouldn't matter who is in the White House, who's in the governor's house, who's in the legislature, legislature or on the school board, because we have work to do no matter who is there. Um, They can certainly make it harder or easier, um, but they don't dictate what our values are. Our values remain the same. Our gospel values remain the same. Lori, I'm so glad you brought this up. And as a pastor theologian for your congregation and for the community of Oklahoma City and the metro area, um, I want to ask you this, and feel free to to, to punt or to, to try to answer to the best of your ability. But when you talk about these differences, theologically, there seems to be one idea that stands alone, and it's a theology of exclusivity versus a theology of inclusivity. That a theology of exclusivity emphasizes a hierarchical formula and that there are those who are quote-unquote chosen at the top of that hierarchy and that there's always going to be this hierarchical, whether it is a social structure, an economic structure uh, at play. But then there's a theology of inclusivity that seems an attempt to level the playing field, understanding the social dynamics that we live within, but making certain that everybody is welcome to the table, to the community, and afforded an opportunity to thrive and prosper, not only as the Constitution has promised in this country, but as a human being that God has given us as a right. Would you agree with that? If so, would you expand on that? Tell us why. If you don't, I totally understand as well. I think what the, your characterization of that is is spot on, Mitch. And I think that it really boils down to theological humility. Mm. Um, whether or not 
people are able to have personal understandings, come to some personal conclusions, while at the same time leaving open the possibility that we don't know all the answers. Mm. Um, and even, f- I would say, taking it a step forward, that um, that the, the ultimate judgment is not our job. That's, that's, God's, that's God's role, but we would really like a stab at it. <laughs> right? Like, we would really like, like, we're really interested in seeing how it goes if we were in charge. Um, and regardless of the fact that every single one of Jesus's parables about final judgment, we are not in charge of the final judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, we really seem to be stuck on, um, on that part of a job description that isn't ours. Sure. And I often invite people to practice a generous theology. Um, and that does not mean that you don't have any dearly held beliefs, but simply that you are willing to let, uh, willing to let people be on their own faith journey. And to quote the apostle Paul, to work out their own salvation, just as you know, you grant yourself the right to. I love that generous theology. I really appreciate that. Well, Lori, I don't know if you know this, but we and you live in the state of Oklahoma. <laughs> I know, surprise, what? surprise. I know, right? Um, Oklahoma is an interesting place to live, Lori. Uh, lots of uh, issues. Uh, that we have to deal with here in the state of Oklahoma. I often feel like Oklahoma is kind of this test case uh, for other pieces of legislation and orders and policies that end up being enacted all over the the rest of the country. But I want to talk specifically about some of these issues. And one, even in the introduction you mentioned, and that is public education. As you well know, in 2018, uh, Oklahoma teachers walked out of the classroom demanding uh, adequate funding for public education. A lot of people thought it was just directly tied to teacher raises, but it was uh, a lot more than just raises. Yes, raises were included and needed to be included, but it was about funding uh, public education at adequate levels. And then, of course, last year, uh, uh, they got another raise, teachers did, but it was attached to a voucher bill that was passed here in the state of Oklahoma. And at the end of last year, the board that oversees virtual charter schools granted funding for a Catholic charter school here in the state. Um, so, Lori, here's what I want to know. As a Christian minister, um, you are a strong advocate for public education. Why should people of faith be advocates for public education? And then secondly, why are so many people who claim to be Christians for this voucher system? Oh, man. <laughs> Where to start? But I will say, you know, as far as why mm-hmm. you should care about this, I think um, pretty fundamental to most Christians is this idea that God's love is for everyone. We were made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. And um, no one 
um, there, there isn't, there isn't a subclass with God. And, you know, we can, we can find that in the teachings of Jesus. We can find that in the writings of Paul. And so this idea that um, the, the doors are open for all permeates our ethos, how we, how we think that we, sh- that we should shape the community, shape the city, shape the state. And so public schools serve all students. They cannot turn any kiddo away. And because of that, our, that aligns absolutely with our Christian values that we would, that, that we would not, um, you know, that we would always, we would give every single child a cup of cold water if they ask for it. Um, and that's essentially what public education is. And so to protect public education means that we are going to have to stand against some things, especially um, what you mentioned, I think, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that we both understand these um, vouchers and the privatization of schools. It's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big scheme to defund public education and to, to privatize education which is really worrisome considering what we already know is happening at private schools, that they are turning away students, that they're saying they may admit them at first and then say, actually, we can't, we can't handle this. We can't meet your needs. We can't serve you. And so good luck finding help. Um, But again, with public schools, it is our, our, our social value and, and definitely a Christian value that, Everyone gets served. Everyone gets help. No one gets turned away. Mm-hmm. I love that. And you'll probably have to, you'll definitely have to repeat the second question. <laughs> well, it's just, it's, a, it's about the voucher system. And one of the things that has really concerned me as of late as that is that there has been this effort. It's been going on for decades. If, if, if it even has roots back uh, to Brown v. Board of Education. And we all know that story and how that began to emerge. But this hot, entire uh, rejuvenation of a reemphasis of vouchers taking away public dollars, it seems as though there is this great attempt to defund and destroy public education because, and I'm putting air quotes for our audio <laughs> audience, um, that Christian Christianity or God has been taken out of public schools and replaced by this, and again, quotes, wokeness. That is terrifying for me. Because it seems as though there is this creative narrative that is being propagated, and let me even be more clear about it, a lie, a false narrative being created in order to divert funds away from public education in hopes to destroy it so that they can control education the way they want to indoctrinate individuals and community. I I think that that is absolutely right. That is a correct characterization of the situation. And, and we can see already the ways that if, um, if, if education is privatized, if 
there's this if, if these this Christian nationalism movement is successful, they are already showing their hand, and they're doing that in ways uh, suggesting that you know we should have the Ten Commandments hung in every classroom. Um, that's a pretty particular religious tradition. Um, the suggestion of a of particular prayers that happened within the last two months in Oklahoma, Superintendent Ryan Walters suggesting a particular prayer that um, teachers should offer in the classroom about a particular issue. Um, that that there is a particular that that um, administrators and teachers would be able to lead. Um, and and I say lead, force their students to participate in a prayer that that is very likely to be of a particular tradition, mm. and and even if it, it even just the idea of praying to a specific deity, of course, is disrespecting the beliefs and value systems of those who are atheists and agnostic, mm-hmm. and I must not pretend that. Um, those folks do not have values. They certainly do. Um, and so we just, you know, that's, that's the kind of, they are showing us what will happen if education is privatized. Here's what it will look like. It, it will look like Sunday school, not your Sunday school, their Sunday school. <laughs> right. and, that, and that's a great point. We see that through even contracts here in Oklahoma with now PragerU uh, being a, uh, a, uh, a source for public educators. A lot of, thank goodness, a lot of districts have rejected that. But the idea mm-hmm. that says, you know, that the European invasion of North uh, America you know, was just natural and that slavery wasn't all that bad. The slaves, you know, learned great skills. That's just craziness, but that's what we're talking about. Yes. Yes. That is what we're talking about. It really is. And this is, I think why it's so important for us to make sure that we are not practicing revisionist history here, um, that we're, we're going to literally whitewash slavery and genocide um, those are the things like that story is at risk. That history is at risk. Um, and so that, prayer university, uh, I mean, prayer you is just like, that is a, a terrifying example. Mm-hmm. And again, um, I think people need to be really clear. They're not playing hide the ball. No, they're they not. are showing us exactly what, what their vision is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is what, People need to get really clear, and 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 perhaps if you haven't watched any PragerU on YouTube, please do so. I ask you to do so, so you can understand the urgency of this of this situation. Sorry, Missy, that probably That's didn't that, that probably didn't help your sense of doom. I know. No, this is all very informative. Okay, but okay. I'm going to pivot now. I know that's to, to another light to another topic. Light topic. <laughs> Let's talk about women's reproductive health. So after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, states like Oklahoma started just chipping away and abolishing almost all abortion care for women. In the spring of 2023, a 25-year-old mother from here in Meeker, Oklahoma, almost died after being refused abortion care when she suffered from extreme bleeding during first her first trimester. And this is only one of so many similar stories coming out um, in other states as, as well as ours. So, Lori, you unapologetically support and advocate 
for abortion care for women. And that's not something that we are historically accustomed to hearing from the pulpit. So for our listeners who are also advocates and supporters, but don't always have the words and theological framing when it comes to this issue, can you offer some wisdom? The shortest sentence I can give to this is to say that God trusts women Mm. and we should too. Despite the sound bites and the rhetoric, um, we actually now have uh, a scientific, a 10-year scientific study called the Turnaway Study that shows us um, what happens to women who uh, were just under um, the week limits um, and were granted abortions and those who were just over the week limits um, and were denied abortions and what happens to those women um, because of that pivotal event, um, including um, impact on mental health, uh, as they were, were as leading up to this moment and after. Uh, and I really encourage people to to find the book called The Turn Away Study. Um, it's just a, a really excellent resource and um, uh, really delves into the stories behind why women uh, seek abortions and uh, what happens when they do and don't get them. As far as, uh, again, the church or Christians supporting health care, mm-hmm. abortion health care, um, you know, this is abortion falls under, for me, the umbrella of reproductive justice. And uh, um, Sister Song helpfully defined reproductive justice as the right to have children, not have children, and raise the children we have in uh, healthy and sustainable environments. Um, and so all of so all of those things are part of reproductive justice, not just access to abortion. Um, but because I believe that God made women as capable moral agents, they should be given the right to choose because they are in the best position to make the right choice for themselves and for their families. We know that 60% of women who seek what are called late-term abortions, which actually mean abortions that occur at 20 weeks and beyond, um, those women, 60% of those women already have children. They are not taking this decision lightly. This is not um, uh, a matter of using abortion as birth control. Um, If you look into any studies about birth control, um, it will fail. No, the only way to not get pregnant is never have sex. That's, that's the number one fail proof. Um, but because we know that people are not doing that, or even if they are having responsible sex, sometimes accidents happen. Um, and the w- women are in the best position to make um, moral, ethical choices about what to do about that pregnancy. Mm. Well said. Thanks, Lori. Well, Lori, last month in December 2023, while the rest of the world was talking about trying to figure out a way to welcome the baby Jesus into our lives, Governor Kevin Stead of Oklahoma hung a sign that said there's no room in the end for anybody but people like him. By 
<laughs> signing an executive order defunding diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, offices and programs and state agencies, including public colleges. So, Lori, it certainly seems to us that uh, these ultra conservatives, these right-wing Christian nationalists oppose diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. So why is it so important for people of faith uh, in states like Oklahoma and the rest of the country, uh, for that matter, to keep advocating for these DIA programs and to advocate for them in the future? I think one, uh, I mean, if we're even just going as, you know, back to scripture and, and as our guide for what we should be paying attention to, uh, you know, one of the strongest themes in the text is about welcoming the stranger. Of course, we believe that the word has been made flesh and dwells among us as people who are intentional about seeing God in every single person's face. That means that we have to know their stories. And that means being serious about our history it means being honest about our history, that not everyone starts at the same start line. We, we don't all begin there. Um, some of us are farther back. Um, that does not mean that, that, you know, if you are a white Saxon Protestant male, that you've had an easy life. It just means that there are some things that you have not had to overcome that others do. And uh, because so often um, we, we read over and over again that Jesus is just repeatedly for the underdog. Every yeah. single time mm-hmm. he is for the underdog. And so as Christians following the way, um, we too are for the underdog. Lori, it seems like this latest effort to defund these DEIA programs is actually an extension of what we've seen across the country later or lately. Uh, not only are you a theologian, but you're a trained lawyer as well. And so over the course of the last few years, we have seen a lot of Supreme Court cases as well as uh, state legislatures uh chipping away at the Voting Rights Act, for example. Uh, The Supreme Court repealed affirmative action last year, and it seems as though this is just the next step in propagating this return to a place in history that wasn't great for everybody uh, because it benefited those in power, and those in power were white Protestant males. Uh, and so it just seems like this is a continuation of it. So as a pastor, as a trained lawyer, do you see this as this attempt to revert culture back to a time where it was predominantly controlled by the white patriarchy? I, I think that's certainly it. I think, you know, people, I hear a lot like questions about, well, how can Christians support this terrible policy? Or how can Christians support that? And my response to that, what they, they ask, what's the theological underpinnings? And I don't think that there are any. Mm-hmm. This is partisanship with the Christian flag wrapped around it. Right. Uh, but it's not, it's not rooted in uh, Christian theology. It's not rooted in the teachings of Jesus. And we, we need to, I think, stop trying to figure out what the Christian perspective is on things like canceling these DEI programs, mm-hmm. denying uh, 
hungry kids free food. Um, and I know we're going to get to that later. <laughs> um, yeah. but, um, you know, this is loyal partisanship in, instead of, you know, faithful politico work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, it's really, I think this is just another argument for why the church needs indeed to be shaping the community in light of the teachings of Jesus and not a party platform. Yeah, I agree. Well, Lori, as we try to wrap things up, I know we've talked about a lot of um, heavy things today. I appreciate your time, but I do want to ask a question. In a state like Oklahoma, and really, quite frankly, the country and world at large anymore, losing faith, staying angry all the time is just really hard to avoid. And, you know, keeping from just wanting to burn it all down and all of these things. But again, standing behind your pod pulpit, unfortunately, we can't see your amazing shoes. They always are. Um, Give us a conclusion. How can we stay energized? How can we stay vigilant? How can we be encouraged to do the work ahead and to press on? I just think story after story in scripture tells us how we can hold on to hope. And that ultimately, um, you know, our, our most significant story we have about Jesus is that uh, the worst thing was not the last thing. We come from a long line of faithful people who faced things that seemed insurmountable. And when they committed themselves to doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly, things turned out. That does not mean that we will necessarily see them turn out, but we know that the story tells us it will. And in some ways that's not very comforting. And I think that's why people get stuck on, well, all I need to do is make sure that I have accepted Jesus as my personal savior and then I'm okay. Mm -hmm. But of course, Jesus was at work in the world And so we too are called to worry about the world and be concerned with it. Um, And so we have all of these stories in our back pocket about times when the ship wrecked, when all seemed to be dead. Somehow life still rose from the grave, from the community that, that gathered around um, from the people that continue to tell these stories of hope because they had it had worked on them, so sh- I've gotta I've gotta tell this to somebody else um, so that they can hold on to hope too. I just don't think that there's there's any other way to read read the gospel. I must say I don't know about you, but I think Lori just skipped Lent entirely, went straight to resurrection morning. <laughs> Listen, we are maybe perhaps living an extended Lent. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. so true. That is so true. Here in true. Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah. So that well, means I don't have to give anything up this year, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lori Walkey, uh, we thank you so much for being uh, our guest this week at Good Faith Weekly. Lori is a senior minister of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City, and you can find out more about her, her ministry, and her church's ministry at their website. Lori, thank you for holding space with us in this state. Thank you for giving us hope and comfort and encouragement because 
you know, we all need it living in the Sooner State. So uh, thank you. Thank you so much. But before we let you go, Lori, we've got one last question that we need to ask you. So Missy, take it away. So Lori, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of our conversation today, the work that you do or anything else that's on your mind, what is your more to tell? So I'm going to do two things. One, I'm going to do one pitch for a photojournalism traveling exhibit called Focus on Abortion that um, tells uh, first-person narratives of folks who are close to abortion. Um, and you can it's focusonabortion.org. Mayflower is actually hosting the exhibit for the next two weeks, and there are times when people can come view um, that uh, exhibit, see photos, and read the, the first-person narratives of, of folks who have experienced abortion um, so that uh, perhaps our hearts can break open and we can, one, see each other um, in, in the stranger um, and also and, and, and hopefully open ourselves up to more compassion um, and more productive conversations about reproductive health care. The second thing I'm going to say is to quote my favorite preacher, Brother Harry Fosdick, a good Baptist boy <laughs> who said in his um, sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win, that revelation is ever before us. It is unfolding. God is always out in front of us. And if we need a good example of that, it is that the Bible closes out ever condemning slavery. And yet, we still followed the arc of the narrative all the way to freedom. So if we can get there with slavery, there is room for movement on other issues. Revelation is always before us. Amen. Lori Walkie, it's always a joy. Please come back anytime to Good Faith Weekly, and we will be in touch. Thank you for doing the good work that you are doing. I always, always enjoy talking to Reverend Lori Walkie. She always has great analysis and leaves me with a little hope all the time. And also something to think about. Yeah, she's one of my favorites. And I made some notes um, throughout the interview of things we might kind of circle back and talk about. But but there's one thing that blew your mind. Yes, the very <laughs> end. And that's what, this is my jumping off point. And since I completely dominated the intro conversation, I'll kind of let you take it. But I want to point out, what she said in her more to tell about the Bible never denouncing slavery. Mm-hmm. I mean, duh. You know, I know. I mean, <laughs> right. I guess I knew that, but had never thought about that. She said, but somehow we got to the point where we understood this is wrong and right. we have made laws against it and things like that. And what else is there? It just, I don't know. I'm still, I'm still processing, still working through that of how, Again, especially, you know, we try to reconcile our our faith with our, you know, the way that we vote or the way that we enact, you know, advocacy issues and things like that. And and thinking about what else might there be that doesn't, isn't, you know, noted in scripture, so to speak, but that we know is inherently 
wrong. Sure. Well, you know, this kind of harkens back to the conversation we had last week with a professor and author who wrote the book, Good Book, and how white evangelicals save the Bible to save themselves. Um, Lori was actually, I mean, absolutely right uh, in stating that the Bible never denounces slavery. In fact, uh, uh, in the household coal, or the household codes that Paul is speaking about in his epistles, he mentions slavery uh, not in a denouncing way or an affirmative way, but suggest how slaves should treat their masters and masters treat their slaves. So it's not a ringing endorsement, but it's not a... Uh, it's not an outright denouncement. Denouncement. So, he, either. Yeah, absolutely right. And so, you know, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Bible never clearly denounces slavery, but people of faith read the Bible, looked at the totality of Scripture, and that's why it's important to look at the totality of Scripture and to filter the entire Bible through the person, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, filter that text through the life and teachings of Jesus from Nazareth. And in doing so, we can draw logical conclusions that, yes, slavery is indeed a bad, bad thing. And I I don't know, I just want to point out, too, that if you're trying to reconcile something with your faith. I agree with you. We yeah. look at the piece and person of, of Jesus and we, we can conclude these things. I also just want to say as a matter of human decency, <laughs> right. slavery is wrong. Yeah. And I used to think we all agreed all, you know, collectively agreed on that point. Now I, I'm, I question whether everyone agrees at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but a Jesus follower or not, I feel like the collective human community, you know, hopefully. I mean, yeah, a vast majority, because there are places in the so, world where slavery still exists. Sure, sure, but it, it is wrong. Right. Unequivocally. Yeah. Um, so that was just, I don't know, That w- it was really kind of a, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way before, mm-hmm. and this is one of the reasons why I respect and you know, love to see what Lori has to say is she's one of those people that makes me think about something I hadn't thought of before. Right. Is that, you know, we got here somehow. And so we need to, like you said, look at the totality of scripture and make conclusions accordingly. Yeah. And I've often said throughout my career that I think the Bible is not a how-to manual. Um, It's a, a guide for us. It is a light for us, a North Star for us. Uh, as we live life and have these experiences, there are some moral codes in, in scripted in the Bible. There are values in scripted in the Bible, and we read those and decipher those and try to determine how do we apply those to our current circumstances in this day and this era. And that's what we do. That's what we've always done. Right now, the debate is looking at the Bible and how to apply these values and these teachings and these morals in a productive way. And it seems as though, as Lori pointed out in our interview with her, that there are certain people of faith, uh, we identified them as Christian nationalism or majority, uh, religious right, who take Scripture and want to use it as a tool of oppression and conformity. The, I call that weaponization. Uh, the weapon is a, that's a, a better term for it. Thank you. The weaponization of scripture. While there are those of us who are people of faith and Christ followers who look at scripture and, and might I add decent human beings? <laughs> Sorry. You said it, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> uh, who look at scripture and and interpret and apply scripture for our matters of faith, our worship of God, how we live out 
the faith that we choose to practice. With respect to the understanding, we live in a pluralistic society, mm-hmm. and that not everybody reads the same scripture I do, or I, that, that I read, interprets it, and applies it in the same manner. Also, there are other scriptures. Also, there are people who choose not to read scripture or who believe in God and not believe in God or believe in a different uh, God. I have to respect that living in a pluralistic society. There are those on the opposite side of that argument who see no room for that uh, negotiation, that it is their their way or the highway. Because if you leave room for that sort of ideology, then you're giving up the right to control and dominate. Right. And that's where the line is, is it's it's a, a dominate and control type of ideology. Yeah. And that's what I mentioned with Lori a while ago, um, the, the theology of inclusivity versus the theology of exclusivity. And the theology of exclusivity really emphasizes this hierarchical structure within society, whether that is... <laughs> Religious, economic, social, there is a hierarchy that God, in their interpretation of the world, has deemed people who are worthy of ruling, the ruling class. And for so many years here in the Western world, that has been primarily white Protestant males uh, or white Christian males uh, over the totality of of history. for those of us who emphasize a theology of inclusivity, it emphasizes the, the leveling of the playing field, that we stress diversity, God's you know, humor in creating us all different and unique and special and beautiful. Well, at the same time, in doing so, God also created humanity in the symbiotic relationship with the rest of God's creation. And therefore, we must learn to live with one another, respect one another, and rely on one another for the continuation of life at large. And so we must learn to include people, to stress equality, to stress diversity, to stress inclusion, because it takes us all to make this a healthy and prosperous world. Those on the other side who stress the theology of exclusivity think hierarchy and order are the only way. Well, you have to, to fall in line and do it. Right. You have to follow your way. script. You have to follow your role. Which I'm not going to lie. In many points of my life, I do I do like a script. I like for you to follow a script when we come on here to record. <laughs> and how often does that happen? No, it does, well, <laughs> that might be because I I never give you the script. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we can talk about that another time. No, I just have to guess. <laughs> you do, and you often guess wrong. But there, so I get it. I'm somebody who who has that need for you know boundaries and lines and rules and conformity. But in my faith and practice, that that can't be there. Right. I mean, uh, you know. And so those two mindsets, those two theologies, play out in our. Uh, political practice, our political ideology and our political practice. And Lori did a great job of explaining what politics, uh, the definition of politics, Mm -hmm. um, because 
it's something we shouldn't be scared of. It really shouldn't be. And for people of faith who grew up in some of the traditions that we grew up in, you know, politics was so taboo uh, that you just couldn't talk about it. And, you know, I understand why, because it caused so much division in a lot of houses and homes and businesses. But the reality is we need to be talking about these things. And so when we can have healthy, productive, and sensible conversations about issues, I always think that is a good thing. I've said from the moment I got behind a pulpit and had and was forced to talk about what was happening in culture, more precisely what was happening politically, I believe in not necessarily a two-party system, but a two-party uh, ideology of people who are more conservative versus more people, people who are more liberal and the entire spectrum in between the two that we need one another. Liberals need conservatives to, you know, to question them and conservatives need liberals to push them. And that's a, that's a healthy dynamic if we're able to respect and acknowledge one another. But what is happening today is different than what we had hoped for from the beginning. And what is happening today is that there is a certain populace who has gained control and power who want to dominate everybody. And it, it doesn't matter if you are conservative or liberal. They want to own you and to dominate you. That is their goal. Well, on that uplifting note, <laughs> wow. Thanks for that. Uh, well, Lori gave us some hope. I mean, she, stay engaged. Stay, she did. You know. I, I just, I, I respect her so much. And I, I so enjoyed watching her example of how a pastor, how a clergy person can be present in the public square and can be an advocate and, and can be present in those spaces and right. do it and do it well, do it based on the conviction of her faith. So yeah. I really appreciate that. To close us out today, yep. I did pull um, a prayer that she posted. She frequently uh, posts her pastoral prayers. If you, if you don't follow her on social media, I recommend that you do. Um, but I took an excerpt of one she uh, posted, I mean, three years ago now, but I feel like it's fitting for today as we're discussing kind of the upcoming year and election and how our faith informs um, just a lot of our ideologies yeah. and, and things. So anyways, I'll read that excerpt to close us out. She says, so yes, let us denounce deadly leadership, but only if we are also doing the work in our own homes, our own neighborhoods, our own communities, at City Hall, down at the police headquarters in the county jail, in the state house, and in the voting booth. Give us the courage to keep the pressure up on our own hearts, Holy One, for we trust your promise to be true. If we humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways, you will heal our land. Amen. That's a great way to end the episode this week. Well, Missy, I hope you have a good week. And to our listeners, I hope that you have a great rest of your week and weekend. And until next week, keep living good faith. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. Mm-hmm.